The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the Block Party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org. You listen to A People's History of Kansas City for a fresh take on local history. We want to honor these stories, and we take the reporting very seriously. And sometimes we just need to chill. Want to hang? Let's party! Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro will make a special appearance. And boy, it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Please come support our work. Ticket information is available at kcur.org radioactive. Today, the name Swope brings to mind lots of Kansas City pillars. Swope Park, Swope Health Center, Swope Parkway. But the real-life man whose name is engraved into the landscape of this city, Thomas Swope, has faded into the shadows. In fact, what he's most famous for is probably the mysterious circumstances surrounding his sudden and dramatic death. It is the most maniacal attempt to murder off a family that I've ever seen. I'm Suzanne Hogan. This is a People's History of Kansas City. And this month, it's an old-fashioned murder mystery based on a totally true story in Kansas City's past. (laughs) Is that you, Dr. Jekyll? There was someone here, a Mr. Hyde. There's no Dr. Jekyll in this story, but there is a Dr. Hyde. And the question at hand is this. Was beloved Kansas City philanthropist Thomas Hutton Swope murdered in cold blood by the prominent physician Bennett Clark Hyde? Or was Hyde actually the victim of a family grudge? Some said he was a saint. Some said he was a killer. Certainly, he had a lot of friends in town who did not believe he was guilty. Also, a warning before we get in too deep here. Parts of this story do have descriptions of death and gore and some mild cussing. So be careful listening with children, unless your kids like that sort of thing. I really have to say, if Dr. Hyde was guilty of what he was accused of doing, he was probably the most villainous, awful criminal in American history. So for weeks now, producer Mackenzie Martin has been investigating these skeletons in Kansas City's closet and keeping me completely in the dark. She hasn't told me anything about this case until now at this very moment. Suzanne, how are you feeling about that? I'm excited because this has all been very top secret. Yeah, it has been. I'm ready to be along for the journey. Okay, good. Because you told me the other day you were kind of nervous. So, Oh, uh, I think like nervous is weird because it's like... I'm not, like, scared of what you're going to find out. <laughs> I mean, I think you should be a little scared. Really? Yeah, I actually think being a little bit nervous is kind of the right place to be for this episode. Well, now I'm nervous. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Okay, so I think maybe the best place to start at first is who is Thomas Swope? So Thomas Swope was born in Kentucky in 1827, spent a year at Yale Law, never practiced, and eventually made it to Kansas City around 1857. And to learn more about his impact here, I turned to a good old friend of the podcast, Michael Wells, a librarian at the Kansas City Public Library's Missouri Valley Special Collections. So Swope comes to Kansas City, like a lot of people during that time, hoping to make it rich. But unlike a lot of people, Swope actually did make it rich because he immediately saw the potential in real estate. And using his inheritance, he smartly purchased the land that became downtown Kansas City. So he pays $7,500 for this big chunk of land, which basically stretches from Main East to Grand and from 9th to South to about 12th or 13th Street. Wait, okay, so when he bought the land, it was farmland. It wasn't downtown Kansas City yet, obviously. It was just a blank slate, so to speak. He got lucky. He picked the land that became this really important part of town. He basically becomes rich, subdividing that farmland and reselling it to other investors. So he also, of course, invested in this huge piece of farmland 
way outside of town, nowhere near everything else, which he donated to the city in 1896. And I'm thinking maybe you know which farmland this became. Yeah, I'm guessing that's Swope Park. Correct. So today, Swope Park is at 1,800 acres, the largest park in Kansas City, and also one of the largest municipal parks in the entire country. Wow. It's just a beautiful space. You've got hiking trails, Swope Memorial Golf Course, fountains, a treetop adventure park, the Starlight Theater, plus the Kansas City Zoo. It's okay, so why did he choose to donate it? So at first, the general consensus was that he was doing it out of the goodness of his heart. I mean, he was one of the most prolific philanthropists Kansas City has ever seen. He especially focused his attention on improving the lives of animals, children, and the poor. So he gave generously to places like the YMCA, the YWCA, the Humane Society. Um, He actually donated the land for a new general hospital, too. But there is another side to his generosity. Back in the 1890s, Kansas City was in a period of rapidly expanding its parks and boulevard system as part of the City Beautiful movement. And obviously, if the city is making big investments like this, it requires taxpayer money. So if you're a real estate mogul, for example, you aren't exactly thrilled about the prospect of paying more in property taxes. So shortly after these big plans were announced, an anti-park organization emerged. And Suzanne, guess who was an active spokesperson of this? Well, I'm guessing now uh, Thomas Swope. Yes. He was a member of the the Taxpayers League, which was a group of uh, primarily real estate investors and downtown professionals who didn't want to see their uh, property tax go up. Okay, so this is interesting because there's always another motive. (laughs) You know what I mean? I do. And a lot of historians actually speculate that by donating this huge piece of land far away from his other investments, Swope was almost trying to provide, like, a substitute to discourage the Parks and Boulevard plan. All of that being said, regardless of his motivations, Swope Park is a hugely important place to Kansas City. It officially opened in June 1896, and an estimated 18,000 Kansas Cityans came to celebrate. Wow. So when I talked to Michael Wells, he showed me this beautiful red ribbon that they were giving out at the opening of Swope Park. Wow. And so this is a ribbon that someone who attended would have worn around the park that day for the festivities. And what's funny about it is that it's got this big picture of Thomas Swope on it. And he was known for being a very private individual. He was not the kind of guy who wanted to be recognized. What it must have been like for this like notoriously reclusive person to see... People in attendance wearing this with his portrait. So that day, Swope was too shy to give a speech or be at the head of the procession, but he did quietly hand a reporter a statement. It read, I have often heard it said that gratitude is a scarce article in this world, but from this time on, I shall reject and ignore that pessimistic sentiment. Oh, so maybe he felt moved by the turnout. That's kind of sweet. So did he have any kids or family? Was he married? No, he was a lifelong bachelor. But before we get into all of that, I really need to introduce you to someone. His name is Ralph Monaco. I've been a lawyer 42 years in Kansas City. He is also the past president of the Jackson County Historical Society and a former Missouri state representative for the 49th district in Jackson County. I like to joke with people because I am the last Democrat who was chairman of the House Judiciary Committee of Missouri history. But that's a different story. So there's been a few books written about the death of Thomas Swope. The most well-known is Deaths on Pleasant Street by the late Kansas City Star reporter Giles Fowler. But soon after, Ralph also wrote his own, The Strange Story of Colonel Swope and Dr. Hyde. The title Colonel was an honorary title because he had become such a great philanthropist for Kansas City. So something I learned very quickly after meeting Ralph is that he has been haunted by this case ever since he first heard about it. Haunted? Haunted. My brother-in-law told us about a mock trial being held at UMKC Law School, and I'm going to say circa 1993. And I attended the mock trial, was impressed, and it immediately snapped my curiosity. So around 2000, Ralph decided to spearhead a mock trial similar to what the UMKC Law School had done, 
And this is something he has since done now for hundreds of history buffs at the Truman Memorial Building and Union Station. So it's like LARPing for <laughs> law <laughs> or yeah. legal LARPing. But the twist is that Ralph plays the character of Colonel Swope, who serves as the narrator to his own murder trial. So I created this line that I do every time I portray Colonel Swope in first person. As you can see, when he does this, he wears tall leather boots. He's got a cigar. You know, my name's Thomas Hutton Swope, deceased. Now, it's not all that bad being dead. You can drink whiskey and smoke cigars and they can't kill you. But what I don't know is what did kill me. So let's talk. What? So our murder mystery starts in October 1909 on Pleasant Street, atop the highest hill in Independence, Missouri, because this is where Thomas Swope, our protagonist, lives, in a huge 26-room mansion that sits on 19 acres of land. This elaborate manor was originally owned by Logan Swope, Thomas Swope's brother, but when Logan died, his wife welcomed Thomas in with open arms. So presently, Thomas shares the estate with his sister-in-law, Maggie, in addition to seven other family members, mostly his nieces and nephews. But he's kind of gone from being someone who mostly kept to himself to being a full-on recluse. He sort of develops a reputation as being of a bit of a curmudgeon. That's Michael Wells again. Doesn't seem to get along well with his younger uh, nieces in the house. Part of the issue is that he's not in good health. He's 81 years old, and most of his life he has been an alcoholic. Another person who lives in the house is Moss Hunton, Thomas Swope's much younger cousin, and also his polar opposite. He was a very warm and fuzzy guy. Oh yeah, there's no doubt about it. So, when Cousin Moss started feeling dizzy on October 1st, the whole family immediately rushes over, and they notice that he's twitching. So Maggie Swope, the family matriarch, orders one of the daughters to call the eldest Swope daughter, Frances. Now, Frances Swope is Thomas Swope's niece, who is married to a man named Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde. So what's the backstory on this Dr. Hyde guy? Yeah, actually, let's get into that. Our two star-crossed lovers, Francis and Dr. Hyde, started going steady in 1903. He was an up-and-coming surgeon, and she was a beautiful graduate of Monticello Women's College. Hyde was known for being incredibly charming, handsome, tall, had an enchanting smile, he was a graduate of William Jewell College and the University Medical College in Kansas City. But one of the details that probably sticks out to me the most is that he could recite Shakespeare's soliloquies in full. A charmer. Basically, Frances was immediately smitten. But her mother, Maggie, made it be known that she was very against the courtship. Wait, why? Because there are skeletons in them, the closets of Dr. Hyde. In short, Hyde had a scandalous reputation in more ways than one. Dr. Hyde had been known to escort older women and fleece them from their dollars. There are some particularly egregious examples. Like when he was the Kansas City police surgeon, he was accused of abusing a black woman. Some leaders in that community, church leaders and community leaders, get together and they actually start holding these protests. Eventually he is removed, but the reprimand, it didn't do much because the very next year, Dr. Hyde was identified as the ringleader of a major grave robbing scandal. What? That seems terrible. Like, <laughs> that seems like a big deal. That seems like a huge deal. Yeah. So basically he was accused of bankrolling a gang of ghouls to systematically rob Kansas City cemeteries. And the purpose was to provide cadavers for the University of Medical College. And there's this one specific part in an article that Michael Wells showed me that's just, like, chilling to hear. Dr. Hyde took his arrest coolly and protested his absolute ignorance of the charge. He smiled and shook hands with his old acquaintances at the police station, but refused to talk of the grave robbery. But despite these accusations, time and time again, Dr. Hyde sort of charms his way out of these situations. 
He seems to think that if he can just sort of like smile and shake enough hands that these things will just go away. And, you know, it does seem to work for him. So he is known already as kind of like trouble. By some people. We don't really ever know how much exactly the Swope family is aware of. All we know is that when 33-year-old Dr. Hyde proposed to 25-year-old Francis Swope, Maggie Swope was like, oh, hell no. But Suzanne, tell me, what is a typical reaction when one's mother forbids them from doing something? Well, that's going to make you want to just go do it even more. Exactly. What happened to Francis and Bennett Hyde? They go down to Arkansas and they elope and get married. What? Ah, juicy. Um, As you can imagine, Maggie Swope was not happy with this. So for 14 months following this, Frances and her mom were completely estranged. Things only changed when Frances' brother was badly injured while working at a mine in Nevada. In a panic, Maggie Swope called her son-in-law for help, and Dr. Hyde really comes through. So basically, she was like, I'm not happy with the fact that my daughter eloped with this guy, but he's also a doctor, and I need help. Yes, and Hyde does a good job. She's impressed with him. So after this incident, everyone starts getting along. And Dr. Hyde's association with the entire Swope family kind of gives his whole career a boost. Okay, so jump forward in time. We are again in October 1909 at the Swope Estate in Independence. Remember, Cousin Moss is sick, and Maggie Swope urges her daughter Frances and Frances's husband, Dr. Hyde, to come quickly. In addition to the Swope family, also present is the regular family doctor, Dr. Twyman, and Thomas Swope's personal nurse, Pearl Virginia Keller. So that's the scene. Moss Hutton has an attack of apoplexy, is what they called it back then. We call it today a stroke. It is decided that the best course of action is to bleed Cousin Moss. So Dr. Hyde, now in attendance, makes an incision on his right arm and starts draining his blood into a basin. Where things start to go awry and where people start to notice is the amount of blood that he's taking. So after about a pint of blood, Dr. Twyman kind of starts telling Dr. Hyde, like, maybe that's enough, we're probably good. But Hyde keeps going. Even Frances told her husband, Derry, don't you think you've bled Moss enough? Finally, he stops. But within minutes of bandaging him up, 63-year-old Moss Hunton is dead. Wow. Just bled to death. Yeah. At the time, no one really thought much of Hyde's actions because bleeding was common practice. But later on, the amount of blood in the basin becomes a topic of heavy debate. According to Nurse Keller's sworn testimony, Cousin Moss had given up four pints which is four times what someone gives when they donate blood. Wow. It's a lot of blood, especially when you've just had a stroke. Yeah, okay. So the person who takes Moss Hunton's death the hardest is Thomas Swope, because Moss Hunton was actually one of his only real friends. In fact, Moss Hunton was actually the executor of Swope's will. Now that is interesting. Whose fortune was estimated back then at about $3.6 million, which is the equivalent today of about $100 million. Now, is this commonly known? Would people know that fact? Oh, yeah, people knew. Would someone like Hyde know that? Hyde knew. Hyde definitely knew. And you're asking good questions because the timing of Moss Hunton's death was peculiar. Because while Swope originally wrote his will several years earlier in 1905... In the days leading up to his death in 1909, he had been outwardly pondering whether his family required so much wealth. Swope was always planning to give a a substantial portion of his estate to charity. However, as time went on, he started to think that maybe he needed to be giving even more and more to charity and less to the family. And Swope wasn't keeping this a secret. He had been talking about this to everyone. So absolutely no one is surprised. When, after Moss Hunton's death, he suddenly gets clear-headed. Like, if he's going to change his will, he needs to do it now. 
And he basically tells his assistant, I'm coming to the office Monday and we're doing this. But Swope is not the only one thinking about this. Mere hours after Cousin Moss's death, Swope's personal nurse, Nurse Keller, claims that Dr. Hyde came up to her with a request. Could she suggest to Swope that Hyde become his new executor? Well, that's pretty bold. <laughs> <laughs> like the body, like he just died. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Nurse Keller was essentially like, that is not my place. I will do no such thing. So two days later, after the death, it's a typical, albeit somber, Sunday morning at the Swope Estate. Thomas Swope wakes up. Nurse Keller goes upstairs to give him his breakfast, several newspapers, and according to her, a digestive pill from Dr. Hyde. Everything seems normal until 20 minutes later when Thomas Swope starts violently quivering. After he took the pill, he went into convulsions breaking out in a cold sweat, and went into a coma. And it's kind of a chaotic scene because this is only two days after Moss Hunton's death. So his body is still in the house. On the first floor, people are, like, coming by and paying their respects to the Swope family. Maggie Swope and the children, they're all grieving. All the while upstairs, Thomas Swope is now battling for his life. I don't know exactly how much later... But Nurse Keller, in her trial testimony, stated that Colonel Swope regained consciousness and made a comment to the effect, I wished I had never taken that damned pill. It's going to kill me. No. And he returned to his coma state. And around 7 p.m. that night, he was muerto, dead. Shut up. What do we know about the capsule? So... The capsule is a mysterious thing. We'll never know for sure what was in it. But, but the, I, capsule, the capsule did exist. The capsule did exist. There's some disputed stuff, but something I can tell you, and you can make your own conclusions, is that Dr. Hyde made a call to Hugo Breckline's drugstore in downtown Kansas City two weeks prior, and he ordered a popular digestive compound, Fairchild's Holodin, and several capsules of cyanide. What the fuck? <laughs> As you know, cyanide is one of the quickest, most lethal poisons. Mm -hmm. And what's curious about these two purchases being back-to-back like this is that the two pills were identical in size, shape, and color. Mackenzie. (laughs) I swear, I only have one more thing about the capsules. And that is that the drugstore he went to kept records of purchases. And a few months after Hyde first buys these pills, the pharmacy burns down. What? (laughs) By the way, Dr. Hyde was not ever accused of arson. But who wonders? (laughs) But anyway, so I want to get back to Swope's death. That very night, the family lawyer, who is also one of the co-executors of Swope's estate, reads the will. And what becomes immediately clear is that the Swope fortune is still firmly in Swope family hands. But had Swope died just a few days later, the will likely would have been rewritten, depriving each niece and nephew of effectively... $140,000 each, which today would be like $4 million. Can you imagine the greed or just a sense of greed to read the will that night? Seems like there's a lot of like hand grabbing in the pot type of mentality around Swope. Totally. And Swope's death has a huge impact on the entire city. When people start hearing about his death the following day, no one is really surprised because Swope had been talking about how he thought the end was near. But the timing is sort of awkward, because as it happens, it is the start of Kansas City's Priests of Palace Festival, which was this six-day, over-the-top, citywide celebration. Oh, wow. It was really designed to mimic Mardi Gras, and it attracted people from all over the area. Of course, the Swope family isn't participating in any of this. It's just a strange kind of mixture of moods going on at the city at the time, where you have this large-scale public celebration, but then also people sort of uh, deep in mourning. Swope's body is displayed downtown at the Kansas City Public Library, where tens of thousands of people come by to pay their respects. Even during a big party. Yeah. I mean, that says a lot. Yeah, like schools were closed in some places and children came out to see both of them because Moss Hutton also has a funeral the same week. But things take an ominous turn on Friday at Thomas Swope's funeral. 
Grace Episcopal Church is packed with the Swope family, in addition to Kansas City's most important dignitaries, politicians, and civic leaders of all kinds. But right as the hearse sets out for Forest Hill Cemetery, a thunderstorm breaks out. It was reportedly so dark and heavy with rain, the bishop had to read the prayer book by matchlight. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And it is not long after Thomas Swope is laid to rest here that even more misfortunes befall the Swope family. Family members begin falling ill one by one. A third Swope dies. And accusations begin swirling, setting in motion the most publicized murder trial of the early 20th century. Is this the ad break? This is, this is the ad break. <laughs> hey, it's KCUR Studios intern Anna Schmidt. I just wanted to say that if you're enjoying this episode of A People's History of Kansas City, you might also like our episode about the ghost of Doc Annie. As it turns out, Behind decades of ghoulish ghost stories is this very real story of a physician who performed illegal abortions in Missouri a hundred years ago. Cue it up now by searching the People's History feed for Unraveling the Legend of Doc Annie. Welcome back. It is 1909, a truly dreadful year for the Swope family of Independence, Missouri. You'll remember the first weekend in October saw the deaths of Cousin Moss Hunton and Colonel Thomas Swope. No foul play is really suspected yet, but it's still only the beginning, in a sense. So I have some photos. Wow! Oh my God, this is beautiful. How would you describe the Swope estate? Uh, gorgeous. It has a beautiful wraparound porch with a lot of arches and kind of like that witch hat facade. I kind of thought it looked spooky. I'm surprised that wasn't your first reaction. I think it's easy to attribute all old houses as spooky. <laughs> but uh, sure, now, now that I know someone's maybe murdered in there, I'm sure that makes, makes me think of it as spookier. So speaking of murder... At this point in our murder mystery, it is November, just after Thanksgiving, when suddenly the swopes start coming down with typhoid fever. Which is strange. That's Michael Wells again from the Kansas City Public Library. Because there were no other outbreaks of typhoid in the area at the time. In fact, most doctors were unaware of a single case of typhoid in all of Independence that entire year, until the Swope family. Obviously, I had a lot of questions about this for lawyer Ralph Monaco. All right, let's see. So he looked it up in his book for me. This is pretty good. I'll just show you. The timeline of the history of the typhoid epidemic from November 11th, 1909 to the Hythe Swope family suspicions is as follows. Basically, two of Maggie Swope's children are some of the first people to get sick, Margaret and Christman Swope. But then it escalates to more and more family members, family friends, servants, The Swopes end up calling in five nurses, the family physician, Dr. Twyman, plus Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde, who, remember, is married to one of the Swope daughters, Frances. December 5th, Dr. Hyde allegedly gave William Christmas Swope, then ill with typhoid and carrying a temperature of 107 four-fifths, a capsule claimed to be regular fever medicine. Oh, no, not another capsule. Within 20 minutes of having taken the capsule, Christman went into convulsions and fell into a coma. Nurse Keller compared Crispin's seizure and coma to the one that had been suffered by Colonel Swope before he had died on October 3rd. According to reports, Crispin's body stiffens like a board, and for hours, Dr. Twyman and Dr. Hyde are debating what to do. They can't agree on a treatment. And then finally that night... December 6th, at approximately 10 p.m., William Crispin Swope died. Wow. And unlike the first two deaths, Crispin Swope was young. He was just 31. And the death in itself is kind of curious, too, because while typhoid was a familiar disease, people often got it from contaminated food or water, only 5% of the victims 
usually died, and rarely this quickly. So all that is to say that Chrisman's death kind of shocks everyone, especially the medical community. A pathologist actually stops by the soap estate to try and get to the bottom of it. He asks questions. He takes water samples. Of course, the family's water supply was tested. They found no evidence of typhoid germs there. And in the end, the pathologist came to the conclusion that it was, quote, as if the infection had been administered to the family with the precision of a scientific experiment. Sinister. There's more. One of the doctors that was really shaken up by Chrisman Swope's death was Dr. Edward L. Stewart. Because a month prior to Chrisman's death, Dr. Stewart helped Dr. Hyde set up an experiment room. He had opened up a laboratory. Dr. Stewart was a bacteriologist, so he gave Hyde a number of germs to kind of jumpstart his research, which included your run-of-the-mill germs in addition to Salmonella typhi the bacterium that causes typhoid. Hmm, so they have a laboratory in their house with these germs. Well, Dr. Stewart is a bacteriologist. It's his job to study germs. And it's not totally unusual for someone like Dr. Hyde to also study germs. But Dr. Stewart is a smart guy. He's a nice guy. He's well-respected in town. And he couldn't just ignore the fact that a few weeks after he gave Dr. Hyde an active typhoid culture, Dr. Hyde's entire family is coming down sick with typhoid. And it is now at a level of severity where people are dying. Something's up. Yeah, something's up. And so Dr. Stewart is like, I need to conduct an investigation. Like, I can't, I don't like these feelings I'm having. I like Dr. Hyde, he's a friend, but I need to check it out. Yeah. So while Dr. Hyde is out of town, Dr. Stewart goes to Hyde's office, talks his way past Hyde's secretary, and sneaks into Hyde's laboratory to look at Hyde's bacteria cultures. And what he finds is that the typhoid culture had been, quote, swept clean. There were enough germs removed to, quote, inoculate the whole of Kansas City. And Dr. Stewart is not the only person who is becoming suspicious. After Chrisman's death, accusations just start flying. Because remember, the Soap Estate is still battling this typhoid outbreak, which continues to puzzle everyone, especially the nurses, like Nurse Keller. Who's been here from the beginning. Yeah. It's really Nurse Keller that starts realizing that Dr. Hyde might not be acting in the best interests of his patients. And when she talks to the other nurses about it, they all agree. I won't go into all the examples they raised, but in addition to his infamous capsules, another issue that came up a lot was that he was constantly giving people injections of strychnine when it didn't make any medical sense. What? Do you know what that is? I've heard of it. Yeah, it's like some type of chemical. So strychnine is a poison that is lethal in large doses, but back then it was used medicinally as almost a performance-enhancing drug in small doses. But... They only used it medicinally when it made sense to use a stimulant. The detail I remember is that the nurses were checking their heart rate and really saw no need for these, these strychnine injections. So finally, Nurse Keller decides all of this is just too strange, and she confronts the family physician, Dr. Twyman. She basically tells him, like she's flat out, Dr. Hyde is murdering these people. Us nurses will not stand by and watch us anymore. It's either him or us. And so they really are the people who stand up and say that something's going wrong here and that something needs to be done. Dr. Twyman, in turn, finds Maggie Swope, and he tells her about the nurse's revolt. And she agrees that Dr. Hyde needs to go. Dr. Hyde is confronted by Dr. Twyman, and Dr. Hyde's beside himself. I would never do that. You know, eventually, his wife says, Dearie, I think we probably ought to leave. And they did. When Hyde leaves, an interesting thing happens. The many people in the house afflicted with typhoid start feeling better. So right away, Maggie Swope and the family lawyer start building the case against Dr. Hyde, investigating whether the true culprit behind the deaths of Thomas and Christman Swope was, in fact, Maggie Swope's own son-in-law. And Dr. Stewart, our friendly bacteriologist, actually plays a big role. Obviously, he's suspicious of Hyde because he knows the doctor wiped the typhoid culture nearly clean. 
But Hyde has no idea that Dr. Stewart broke into his laboratory. So Stewart becomes this double agent. In an interesting turn of events, after Dr. Hyde is accused of the typhoid outbreak, he claims to come down with typhoid himself, which Dr. Stewart thinks is a little too convenient. So, as his friend, he runs tests on Hyde, and he comes to the disturbing conclusion that Hyde poisoned himself with dead typhoid germs to evade suspicion. Dr. Stewart brings all this evidence against Dr. Hyde then to the growing cohort of doctors and lawyers who are assembling this case. And one of the big things investigators learn is that there is an incubation period for typhoid, anywhere from a few days to a couple weeks. And pretty reliably, they could mark the date of someone demonstrating symptoms of typhoid and then backtrack to an encounter with Dr. Hyde. And these are specific, like Hyde gave water to Lucy Lee Swope on a train exactly a week before she got sick. What? Okay, that's like... (laughs) And she wasn't even in the state. She was in New York. Like, he went to go meet her, and he gives her water, and then a week later, she's back home, and she's avoiding the house, but she still comes down with typhoid. Wow, okay. Yeah. And then there's this whole other matter of how in early October, Francis and Dr. Hyde started bringing their own personal supply of distilled water over to the Swope estate. Um, This is almost two months prior to the typhoid outbreak. So how is this being covered in the press? What is the public saying about it? Well, nothing had leaked yet, but shortly after Christmas, the Swope family arranges for independent autopsies of both Chrisman and Thomas Swope. And to avoid publicity, they did Thomas Swope's in secret, so they remove his body from Forest Hill Cemetery in the dead of night. But, Suzanne, the press found out the very next day anyway, and reporters flocked up the hill to the Swope estate to try and get quotes. People were anxiously awaiting. The autopsy results kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed. 18 days later, the hotly anticipated results are printed in the newspaper, effectively saying that Thomas and Crispin Swope had been poisoned with strychnine. And even more troubling, the papers report that Swope's own nephew, by marriage, Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde, was suspected of the murders. Naturally, the case very quickly attracts two very high-profile Kansas City lawyers who happen to already have a pre-existing rivalry. Because, of course... Who? What are their names? The special prosecutor was James A. Reed. Oh, yeah. So he was a former Kansas City mayor and powerful corporate lawyer associated with the Pendergast machine and the GOAT faction of the Kansas City Democratic Party. Meanwhile, representing the defense is Frank Walsh, a member of the Rabbits, the other Democratic faction in Kansas City. And he's also well known for championing workers' rights. So it's a real clash. Yes. So like this is a really big case. And I'm not going to go into it exhaustively because it's just a lot of legal stuff. How long did it last for? Approximately seven years. Wow. I mean, really, the, the Kansas City Star, the Kansas City Post all covered this like One would be following the pitch-by-pitch of a baseball game. The first thing that happens is in February 1910, a coroner's jury finds that Thomas Swope did die by strychnine poisoning, which they believed was administered by a capsule. Then in March, a grand jury hands down 11 indictments against Dr. Hyde, including first-degree murders of Thomas and Chrisman Swope and manslaughter of Moss Hunton. Hyde is also charged with using typhoid germs to poison Margaret Swope, Lucy Lee Swope, Sarah Swope, Stella Swope, and several other people. Then, in April 1910, the murder trial starts. National papers send correspondents from as far as New York and Chicago, and it is standing room only from the start. I mean, we like to think that true crime podcasts are sort of a modern invention, but people at the time had the same kind of appetite. Very quickly, Hyde's trial becomes all about the murder of Thomas Swope. And everything else, it all becomes evidence of the motive. Strychnine was used in capsules to treat dyspepsia, but not any quantity that would be toxic, all right? So the question was, did Dr. Hyde, when he filled that prescription, add more levels of strychnine to it to make the amount contained within that capsule lethal? The prosecution's case really rested on the fact that the fewer Swope family members who remained alive, the more Dr. Hyde and his wife would stand to inherit from Swope's fortune. Is there any camp of people thinking that he's innocent? Oh, yeah. 
If you think about it at the time, Dr. Hyde was a very well-connected member of the medical community. Certainly, he had a lot of friends in town who did not believe he was guilty, who I think couldn't imagine that someone in their own ranks could ever be involved in this kind of thing. Frances Swope also proclaims her husband's innocence loudly. Frances stood by her man. In a sad twist, the well-respected family doctor, Dr. Twyman, sadly dies right before the trial. Shut up. No foul play is suspected, but it does kind of put pressure on other witnesses against Hyde, like Maggie Swope and Dr. Stewart and Nurse Keller. Nurse Keller was a killer for the prosecution. She was excellent. So they all have to take the stand. Does Hyde have to take the stand? He does take the stand, and it does not go well. At best, it was neutral, and at worst, it hurt him. Like, one thing that people want an answer for from Dr. Hyde is why he bought all those cyanide capsules. Like, why would a doctor need that? And he never really gives a good answer. Dr. Hyde would testify that he bought the cyanide, put him into capsules to kill rats or dogs. That was kind of inconsistency in the testimony. Like the question, who the hell poisons dogs with capsules? Finally, after three nights and two days of deliberation, the jury finds Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde guilty of murdering Colonel Thomas Swope. But the Swope family barely has a moment to celebrate before Frank Walsh files an appeal to the Missouri Supreme Court, which eventually throws out the verdict. What? Yeah. So he was convicted. He was convicted, but on what grounds? What? So tell me about this appeal. So they overturn it because basically the evidence of other crimes had been allowed in when they were really only prosecuting for the Swope murder. The Missouri Supreme Court said, yeah, you proved that people died and got sick, but you didn't prove that it was Dr. Hyde who did it. They didn't show causation. The state of Missouri versus Dr. Hyde's case in the Supreme Court of 1911 is still a leading case on causation and murder cases. I see. Yeah. Okay. So two more trials followed. One was a mistrial because a juror escaped in the middle of it. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) The third is a hung jury because they can't make up their minds. And overall, I think what kind of strikes me about this is that this case becomes such a spectacle. Like, Ralph showed me this article from 1917, and I feel like that kind of sums up what this became for the country really well. The New Orleans Bee, April 17, 1917. Attorneys for and against Hyde have stormed, shouted, pleaded, demanded, and wept. Witnesses have been carried, fainting or hysterical from the stand. Jurors have argued themselves hoarse. One even went temporarily insane. So there was talk of a fourth trial, but it never happens. And eventually, Dr. Hyde walked free. The charges are dismissed. And so what I see when I look at sort of the totality of the trial is just another example, again, if you believe in Dr. Hyde's guilt, of someone who's done terrible things and just through keeping his cool is able to to get away with this crime. Michael Wells didn't overtly tell me what he thought, but he did say that he thinks most people these days probably lean towards the fact that Dr. Hyde is guilty. He comes off as such a cold, calculating figure in history, and because of his ability to sort of blend into polite society, you can't help but make associations with like a Ted Bundy type figure. But I also feel the need to point out here that I talked to Ralph Monaco for over two hours about this case. We were just going back and forth on the evidence. And Ralph was just constantly reminding me of all the evidence to the contrary every time I was fishing. To say that he's innocent. Yeah, to say that he could be innocent. Do you remember when the Swope family had Thomas and Chrisman's bodies dug up? Yeah. Well, a huge reason that the Supreme Court threw out the trial verdict was the autopsy. They screwed up. Basically, what happens is that Maggie Swope secures Dr. Ludwig Hechtoin, a leading forensic pathologist in Chicago, to do the autopsies of Thomas and Crispin Swope, which is a really big get. He had written the learned treatise on the treatment of how to properly perform autopsies. And yet, Hechtoin does everything he warns people not to do when they're doing autopsies. The autopsies of both were done at night. 
were done under limited lighting, were done on frozen corpses. Each frozen corpse's body was cut open and thawed out by pouring water into them. The top of the head of each corpse was cut open, hot water was poured in to thaw out the brain, and each brain sort of collapsed in the hands of the great Dr. Hectoin. And of course, the bacteriologists, oh yeah, there's lethal doses of strychnine, there's lethal doses of cyanide, that killed both of them, all right? Wait a minute, it was a botched autopsy. How do you separate frozen liquidity that was in there? I mean, it was just awful. But you get what you pay for, right? That's why to this day, you're never going to be able to convince anybody that Dr. Hyde killed these people. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering, because it's like, it's so easy to get caught up in the hype and the capsule and the, you know, the motive and all these things. But it's like, you have a right to due process and you are innocent until proven guilty. Am I allowed to ask you what you think? Sure. What do you think? I don't know. I really? Mean, I pro- you I, really don't know? I, I mean, he certainly had nothing to do with the death of Moss Hutton. Nothing. To you, do. you don't think he overly bled no, on purpose? No, I think he was going to die regardless, and he died. A and, lot of people think he did, though. Uh, yeah, Nurse Keller, but remember, they're all biased. They're all being paid by Maggie. All these people got paid by Maggie. How many fortunes, how much, half a million dollars Maggie spent on the battery of lawyers to put her son-in-law in prison? That's why when you pay Dr. Hectoin, you tell him what the outcome is of the autopsy you want, notwithstanding the fact you screwed it up, you're going to get the answer you want. So Dr. Hyde in 1917 is a free man. Yeah, he's so a then free what, man. So then what, is, what does he do? So Dr. Hyde was never held accountable for his alleged crimes, but he found it impossible to come back from the accusations. He moved back to his hometown of Lexington, Missouri, worked as a truck driver, mechanic, and he did go back into medicine, but his reputation had taken a serious hit. I, I'm curious about Francis, and I'm curious about Maggie. What happened to those women? So, Maggie specifically, she spent so much money during the trial that she didn't end up with much. She ends up selling the Swope estate. It gets torn down. Today, there's no physical evidence left of it in independence. And kind of an interesting twist, uh, Frances Hyde does eventually make up with her family. And that happens a decade after the first trial. She divorces Hyde, gets custody of their kids. They have but, kids? Yeah. Actually, I have a photo of um, their son. Hmm. See, that makes me also, it's like, they had a family, they had kids, he was a dad, you know, it's not, he's not just like some like, yeah, murdering doctor, you know, like. And interestingly, Francis never stopped proclaiming his innocence. Even in the divorce case, she was asked, do you believe that your husband did what he was accused of doing? No, I do not. I am divorcing him because he's so melancholy. He drinks too much, and the only thing he can think about is the ordeals that he went through over the last 10 years. I think I thought... You were going to wrap it up in a bow and give me an answer, and you're not, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, I think I'm more interested in kind of how Kansas City is obsessed with this, especially because Swope is such a big name here. And Rolf especially kind of made me realize how big this story is still because he's, like, truly still in it. Like, he told me about this lead he got that didn't end up panning out, but it was recent. I didn't know about Elmer Swope challenging the will until last year. Do you think that if you keep searching, you might find an answer? That's perhaps a possibility. Unlikely, but a possibility, right? To me, it's still still ranked as one of the top 100 unsolved murder mysteries. I really have to say if Dr. Hyde was guilty of what he was accused of doing, he was probably the most villainous, awful criminal in American history, a potential great serial killer. So, Suzanne, while working on this, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, for obvious character name reasons, but also because the story centers on this well-respected scientist, Dr. Jekyll, who's living a double life. It took the genius of Robert Louis Stevenson to fashion this tale of the dual forces which are forever at war in every human breast. I'm glad you went there. Do you remember how that story ends? 
I don't. The, the story ends because he's learning how to transform into this alter ego who's a murderous criminal known as Mr. Hyde. But eventually, Dr. Jekyll loses control and Mr. Hyde, like, takes over. And I am Hyde. And I bring it up because my theory is that we are obsessed with this case, like pretty much all true crime, because we are tormented with this question of who was Dr. Hyde? Was he a good scientist like Dr. Jekyll or was he a murderous villain like Mr. Hyde? So, like, ultimately, we will never really know, but that's kind of the reason we care. Ooh, that's good. That's good. That's a good ending. A People's History of Kansas City is a production from KCUR Studios. It's hosted by me, Suzanne Hogan, and our senior producer is Mackenzie Martin, who reported, produced, and mixed this episode, with editing by Gabe Rosenberg. Special thanks to Becky Swope, the Jackson County Historical Society, Missouri Valley Special Collections at the Kansas City Public Library, the State Historical Society of Missouri, and KCUR interns Anna Schmidt and R.J. Schultz. Also, huge shout out to author Giles Fowler. Fowler died back in 2018, but we'll be forever grateful for his book, Deaths on Pleasant Street, which was a huge source of research and general inspiration for this episode. You heard archival audio this episode from Inspector J, KETC-TV, the Library of Congress, the 1931 film Frankenstein, the 1941 film Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and the TV show Jekyll and Hyde, in addition to old-time radio dramas Suspense, Dragnet, and George Edwards' Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Music this episode from Mrs. Eyre, Scott Joplin, Haynes Kastner, Frank Duvall, Tom Dorsey, Serge Krish, the Norman Luboff Choir, Prince's Band, American Symphony Orchestra, and Blue Dot Sessions. All right, that's it. Let us know what you thought of this episode by emailing us at peopleshistorykc at kcur.org. We also have a Facebook group you can join for more mysteries about Kansas City's past. And if you like this podcast, please consider writing us a review or sharing it with a friend. We'll be back in November. Until then, I'm Suzanne Hogan. Happy Halloween.